months ago. He said, what do you think would be a good thing to talk about? <clears throat> and I said, well, it's close to Thanksgiving, so you can't go wrong in talking about gratitude and thankfulness. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we do, I'd like to pray. Father, we come before you today and we just extend this time into your good hands. Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O great, our great God and our Redeemer. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. You know, I don't know about you, but when I flip the calendar to November 1, my heart starts to be a little faster because the holidays are coming, and I love the holidays. You know, it's, I start thinking about times together with friends and family and lots of long walks with cool autumn air around us, and of course Thanksgiving is the first stop on that journey toward Christmas. You know, sitting down at a Thanksgiving table in a lot of ways can seem like it's really far away. It's less than a week, I'm sorry to tell you that, but it's less than a week away. Um, but it doesn't have to be that that's the time where we focus our heart most intently on Thanksgiving. Perhaps if we think of giving thanks only in the context of an annual feast with family and friends, but what about the spirit of thanks, what if the spirit of thankfulness could be found in all of our ups and downs in life, even those that don't come with a side of gravy with the stuffing? You know, a sense of gratitude that emanates from who God has said that he is, not just what he's done for me lately, but who he is, how he's been there to embolden me at Red Sea moments, how he's been there to strengthen me as I've walked through a difficult time, how he's been there on the other side of a storm to give me perspective and about what I just went through as I learned more about his grace. So I'd like to take each of these three scenarios that we face and consider the role that gratitude can play during each of those. To see these times when we're called to remember God's promises, to remain in his presence, abiding in him, and to rejoice in his provision. So the first is about remembering. And I was telling Carol this morning, she said, well, how are you feeling about speaking? And I said, well, like a good Baptist, I have three points and a poem, so I think we'll be all right. Um, the first point is about remembering. A scripture that, uh, that I'd like to think about this morning is from 1 Thessalonians 5, and it's where we both start and end. For in it we're told directly what is the will of God at these important crossroads in our lives. You know, often we find ourselves wondering about God's will in specific areas of our lives, um, as we should, and how that, that his will would play out. What job should I pursue? What kind of internship should I apply for? Whom should I marry? With whom should we partner in educating our children? Uh, what church ministry should I serve in? These are all important questions that we should approach with prayer, time spent in God's word, and in community with others who know us and can help us spot our blind areas. So while the will of God may at times seem hard to discern and even obscure, our scripture passage is not at all difficult to grasp. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, we read, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The word all appears several times here, and you look it up and it means all. So there aren't exceptions to this. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But the ability to give thanks in all circumstances requires an enabling work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
a work that allows us to remember what God has done for us in the past, how he sustains us every day as we remain and abide in him, and how we've grown in our faith as we've walked through tough times, learning about rejoicing and having a perspective about our difficulties. So for purposes of our time this morning, I'd like to think about these three um, trials and difficulties, these stages of those that we all face at various times in our walk with the Lord. The first is when we're confronted with a challenge that it feels at least temporarily, it makes us feel immobilized. I think of these as Red Sea moments. We come up to the edge of something that seems insurmountable. We've been obedient to God, we believe. We've stepped out in faith and things have been going well, but suddenly we find ourselves at the edge of the water with seemingly no way across. The enemy is closing in from behind and we panic. In these moments, we need to remember that God is not only in us and by our side, but he's going before us. Hear Moses' words from Exodus 14:4, when a panicked multitude stood before what they considered an unexpected, insurmountable problem. Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. He was calling them to remember what they had already seen God do in bringing them out of Egypt, to stir up those memories, to remember his promises, and then with that assurance to wait and see what God was about to do. Now, as we all know, faith is not a spectator sport. We're called to take action based on our faith. In fact, we can see in the very next verse where the Lord says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff, raise your hand over the sea, divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. Why? Because when my glory is displayed through them, all of Egypt will see it and know that I'm the Lord. So if you have ever seen God move in a faithful way in your life and in your circumstances in the past, you need to stir up those memories, rehearse them, Tell the stories of his faithfulness, even as you stand at the edge of the sea with water lapping at your toes. Thank him for his provision in the past. Ask him to give you the insights that you need to move forward. Sometimes it all begins with just a step forward that might not seem to make sense. A step forward in faith to just thank God and praise him for who he is. Time spent in worship and can radically change our perspective. The songs we sing, the fellowship we enjoy, the time spent in prayer and reading God's word all point us upward and outside of our circumstances. We see this principle found in the story in 2 Chronicles 20 of a time when God asked his people to do something completely unconventional in preparation for a battle against an enemy that was much larger, better equipped, and more experienced. The theme of the verse was, don't be afraid or discouraged, the Lord is with you. The army of Israel was moving out to engage the combined forces of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. The odds were decidedly not in favor of the Hebrews. As the army was forming up for battle, though, King Jehoshaphat stopped the army and reminded them, believe in the Lord your God and stand firm. Believe in his prophets and you will succeed. Then the king did a very unmilitary thing. He appointed singers to walk in front of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. 
As they walked, they were to sing, give thanks to the Lord, his faithful love endures forever. This group of unarmed singers was called to the front of the line to do what God had gifted them to do, to sing. They were to be the vanguard, walking ahead of all the weaponry and the military might, all the things that conventional wisdom would say are needed to engage an army and win a battle. An experienced military observer would have probably scratched their head or perhaps even bowed their head and commended their souls to the Lord because for surely they would be the first to fall in battle. But God had another plan, as he so often does, and he was just looking for those who were willing to trust him at his word and step out in faith. And so the singers formed up and began to walk forward. And as they walked, they sang, Give thanks to the Lord, for his faithfulness endures forever. And as they sang, the scripture said, God moved into action. Verse 22 reads, At the very moment they began to sing and give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. After all the preparation and hard work, the Israelites needed to remember who was truly in charge of the situation. Their job was to keep first things first, both literally and figuratively. Obedience and humility would precede victory. The story of Gideon in Judges 7 is another example of God asking his people to do something quite simple that would seem unrelated to the perceived task at hand. For Gideon, it was a time to take lanterns, cover them in a clay pot, surround the enemy camp, and on the signal, break the pots, blow the horns, and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Not exactly a strategy taught in war college. But just as in the victory with Jehoshaphat, their obedience set the stage for a miraculous victory, a victory that could not be explained in any way other than God. In both cases, the Lord caused the enemy armies to begin to fight among themselves, accomplishing what the outnumbered army of Israel could not have done, relying on its own conventional strength. They were simply called to be obedient, even if it seemed unrelated or out of sync with the task at hand. Joshua and Caleb understood that power of remembering God's promises as part of a group of 12 spies they had been sent to survey the land of Canaan. What the group reported is a great reminder that what we choose to focus on shapes our view of our particular problem. The report of nine of 10 of 12 of these, that's 83.33% for our statistical friends, focused on the size and the strength of the enemy compared to the ragtag group of heroes, Hebrews. They looked at the problem from where they stood and saw no logical, rational way forward. It was a very pragmatic approach. Two, however, Joshua and Caleb chose to focus on the size of God's promises they remembered the end of the story that God had promised and worked their way backwards, which gave them the confidence to boldly proclaim, let us go at once and take the land. We can certainly conquer it. All 12 had seen the same thing. 10 were focused on why it wouldn't work based on human calculus. Two remembered God's promises and were ready to march out in faith, maybe not sure exactly how it would be accomplished, but they had seen God deliver them from slavery in Egypt, part the waters of the sea to provide a way of escaping. Compared to those kinds of miracles, thick walls and well-armed enemies seemed small, at least to Joshua and Caleb. 
When we remember God's faithfulness and rejoice in his promises, the size of our giants begin to diminish. Our memories have great power for good or for ill. Memory of God's faithfulness exemplified in stones of remembrance. If we remember, the Hebrews were often instructed in the wilderness to make a pile of stones because something major had happened there that God wanted them to remember every time they passed that way. Sometimes it was a time when God had blessed them in an unexpected, miraculous way. Sometimes it was when his anger and his judgment had broken out against them. But he wanted them to remember because he knows that we have faulty memories. We are forgetful people. That's one of the reasons that the Lord's Supper is so important for us, to remember the unmerited grace and favor that we've received. You know, in moments of need, the Holy Spirit can stir up within our hearts and give us counsel, wisdom, and perspective. But there has to be something there to be stirred up. If the only thing in your heart is the latest lyrics you were listening to of a country western song, that's not going to help a lot, right? So whatever's in your heart, the Holy Spirit can stir up. That's where scripture that we've hidden in our hearts can be brought to mind to remember God's faithfulness. Also, deep theological truths contained in words of hymns and praise songs, especially Thanksgiving hymns. Many of these hymns go back hundreds of years and root us in the context of God's faithfulness and care regardless of the historical moment and the cultural context. Consider for a moment the words of For the Beauty of the Earth from 1864 that call us to remember God's majesty. For the beauty of the earth, the glory of the skies, for the love which from our birth over and around us lies. Over, Lord of all, to these we raise. This our joyful hymn of praise. For the beauty of each hour, for the day and the night, hill and vale, tree and flower, sun and moon, stars of light. Lord of all, to these we raise. This our hymn of grateful praise. Are these words from Come Thou Found of Every Blessing from 1758. Just think of what the world must have looked like in 1758 to followers of Christ. These words have stirred uh, followers of Christ to remember and rejoice in God's faithfulness. The hymn writer writes, Come thou found of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. So what if we're not just standing on the edge of something and wondering about how we're going to get through it? What if we find ourselves in the middle of something? not just standing and wondering. The storm is kicked up, the boat is rocking, and we feel alone and perhaps forgotten. You remember the story of the disciples caught out in the storm on the lake found in John 6, 16 through 21. After a full day of ministry, Jesus had slipped away from the crowd all by himself. The disciples went down to the shore to wait for him, but when it started to get dark, they decided to go on ahead without him. On the way across the lake, a gale-force wind blew in. Many of the disciples were experienced fishermen, but we see in the story that even they were terrified after three or four hours of trying to row, row into the storm. 
Where was Jesus? Why wasn't he there? They'd seen him calm the storms before, but where was he now? They're all good questions. Have you ever felt that way? Where's Jesus? Why isn't he here? We've seen him calm the storms before, but why not now? Perhaps they were also had another, struggling with another question that burned in their hearts. Why had they decided to leave without him? In the midst of their struggle against the storm, and perhaps against themselves as they doubted, Jesus came walking on the water toward the boat. He saw they were terrified, and so he called out to them, Don't be afraid, I'm here. Notice that this time he didn't tell the wind and the waves to calm down. He reminded the people of his presence in the middle of a storm that continued to rage. As a result, Scripture says they were eager to have him in the boat. You know, the promise of God's abiding presence in our lives through all its up and downs is our anchor point. It's truly our only anchor point. In Jesus' final charge to his disciples found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he reminds them that they can be sure that he'll be with them always, even until the end of time. That's a choice he's made, unmerited grace, a promise and an invitation, a promise to be there and an invitation to abide in him through all the ups and downs of life, to remain in close communion with him, to draw from his strength and resources, especially when the storm is raging and we feel that we've done all that we can do. That's the time when we realize that if it's gonna get done, he'll have to do it because we're at the end of our rope which, by the way, is where he does his very best work. 2 Corinthians 12, 8-9 says, Three different times I've begged the Lord to take it away. It, Paul's referring to a, a, a thorn in the flesh that he had. We're not sure exactly what it is. But each time the Lord answered him, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weakness so the power of God can work through me. John 15, 4 says, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. There's a concept here of abiding in the vine. We do this by practicing the presence of Christ in our lives, which allows us to be steadfast, even in the middle of a storm. But it's his strength, it's not ours putting on his whole armor so that we can move out for his glory, both defensively and offensively. We read the familiar passage, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to do, you can do, stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breath, breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all power and supplication. To that, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. 
and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the Christ for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul's reminding us the battle is not anything that we can see, the real battle in our soul, but it's being played out on a completely different plane. Because of that, we need different kinds of weapons. Verse 12 gives the context of where this battle is. It says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authority in an unseen world, against mighty powers of the dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Having given us the context for this battle, he says, therefore, because that's the reality of it, put on the whole armor of God and stand against the enemy in the evil day. You know, God has all the power needed to overcome anything that we can face. But in order to stand in that strength, we are commanded to put on all of God's armor, not just the pieces we like the best, but all of God's armor so that we can withstand the strategies of the devil. What does that evil day look like? It must be important because we're told that we need all of God's armor to resist the enemy and to stand on the evil day. That evil day is when Satan comes against us with whisperings. Sometimes it's seemingly overwhelming temptation, whispering, it doesn't matter, no one will really know. It's not really that wrong. Or whispering in confu- when we have experienced confusion and heartbreak in our family, whispering, where is God in the middle of all this? Or in the frustration of a tragic loss or a severe health challenge, whispering, if God's really good, he would not have let this happen. Those are the evil days where Satan comes against us. His strategies are often subtle, but always targeted to create doubt, shame, guilt, and ultimately despair. If he can do that, he wins, at least this round. These are the evil days that come to trap and ensnare us that Paul is warning us about. To stand firm in these battles, we need to put on all of God's armor, all six pieces of it. The first that's mentioned is the belt of truth. It's battle imagery here. Roman soldiers wore tunics uh, as their basic garment. Getting ready for battle, the first thing would be put on is a belt. Think utility belt. A lot of things can hang from. The tunic would be hitched up so his legs could be unrestricted. Then the breastplate would be attached to that belt. Remember, the breastplate is God's righteousness, right? And so it's being attached to that belt, that belt of truth. And the sheath for the sword, God's word, is attached to that belt as well. So the belt was the central anchoring piece of the soldier's battle gear. Paul says that's the role that truth must play in our lives and in our preparation to go against Satan in the evil day. It must be central anchoring element in our life. To know what is true and what is false, which voices are of God and which are of the accuser, We need the ability to discern what are promptings and what are accusations. The belt held everything in place, including the body armor, which was God's righteousness, and the sheath for the sword, which is God's word. But if the belt of truth is important, then truth itself must be central. But which truth? Don't I get to decide what's true for me? Isn't it narrow or even bigoted to say that there's only one truth? You have two choices here. Choice number one, We recognize that truth is a measuring stick, something that resides outside of me, and it never changes, no matter my circumstances, my passions, or my desires. 
no matter if I believe it or not. It remains the same. It's revealed in God's word, all cultures, all time, all people get the same truth. Or you can have choice number two. Contrast that with a worldview that says truth resides in each of us and it's up to us to discover, which by the way, can come by journeying along many different paths, we're told. So if I'm looking for self-affirmation, which of these would I choose? Probably number two. Why would choosing number one be hard to follow? Because as C.S. Lewis writes, if you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will get neither comfort nor truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin, and in the end, despair. So it matters greatly which truth you're putting on as your anchor for your armor. Remember, everything else will be anchored to that truth. Your view of God, of meaning, of purpose, destiny all flow from your view of truth. After putting on his belt, the soldier then put on his body armor and attached it to the belt. After putting on the belt of truth, Paul tells us that we are to, to put on God's righteousness. Why would a soldier need to attach the body armor to his belt? To hold it securely in place so that it didn't move around during battle. It needs to stay fixed so that it can do what it's designed to do, protect your vital organs, your heart. Point number two body armor of God's righteousness, not just our righteousness. That would be a poor armor indeed. But through Christ, we are made righteousness. God's righteousness has been made available to us through Christ. That is the truth. We're told to put on the belt of truth, our position of Christ, and then in that knowledge and confidence to put on the whole armor of God's righteousness, the body armor that protects our heart. Knowledge and confidence in God's righteousness imputed to us through Christ deepens our hearts and minds helps them to be correctly oriented regardless of how fierce the battle may rage or the storm may howl. We're told then that we need to put on the shoes of peace. Shoes or boots enable the soldier to move out quickly without injuring your feet. The soldier's job was either to keep the peace or win the peace. Either way, he needed to be sure that he could move on command. In this context, we fasten on the belt of truth, put on the whole armor of God's righteousness, we can experience a deep soul peace when we're called to move, even when that command puts us in the middle of the most intense battle. Isaiah 26, three through five says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock for he has humbled the inhabitants of the high, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. That's the kind of confidence that we can have as we move out on God's command. A peace that comes from the knowledge that God is the one who's fighting for us. He has all the power and he's already written the end of the story. The heart and head knowledge of the truth gives us a proper context for looking at the challenges and oppositions we face. Then we're told to take up the shield of faith, which protects, think about what a shield does, it protects uh, from blows during hand-to-hand -hand combat. Also, it allows the soldier to move forward in an offensive posture, not just protecting from the blows, but advancing to put the attacker on the defense. Faith is needed when we're called to step forward, but we can't see the path forward. That's when faith is needed. If we could see it, it wouldn't be faith. 
Faith as a shield equips us to withstand the doubts and questions that are hurled at us with the purpose of cowering us to give in and give up, part of Satan's strategies. Faith allows us to look beyond what is immediately apparent to see how God may be at work in a larger context. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight, living our lives in a manner consistent with our confident belief in God's promises. The helmet of salvation protects our mind, which is the control center of our body. Our position in Christ changes everything. The knowledge of that position changes everything. We've been redeemed and made right with God through Christ. He has promised never to leave us, no matter how difficult the circumstances, no matter how hard the storm. The Lord is my light and my salvation, we read in Psalm 139. Why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger. Why should I tremble? When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surround me and my heart will not be afraid, even if I'm attacked, I'll remain confident. The final is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. You know, swords are used both offensively and defensively. It's the soldier's primary weapon. He's trained in swordsmanship so that he can not only protect himself, but so that he can engage the enemy offensively. God's Word is that sword. We should train ourselves so that we're both able to defend and assert its truth in opposition to the enemy. Effectively wielding a sword, though, however, requires context. The enemy has to be correctly identified and engaged. The soldier has to be prepared to fight and willing to fight. He needs to know what is true and what is not. He needs to have the power of conviction and not just motivated by his opinions. He also needs to know when to pull out the sword, which is attached to the belt of truth. So the time we spend in God's word, reading, meditating, memorizing, is a critical part of putting on the whole armor of God so that we can abide in him, we can remain in him in the middle of a difficult time, especially when we find ourselves there. Prayer is another way that we can stay anchored. R. Kent uh, Hughes writes this, prayer is like time exposure to God. Our souls function like a photographic plate and Christ's shining image is the light. The more we expose our lives to the white hot sun of his righteous life, the more his image is burned into our character, his love, his compassion, his truth, his integrity, and his humility. There are times when life just doesn't make sense. I get an amen with that. When God does not seem to show up in the ways that we might expect, we prayed, but if you're anything like me, my prayers in times of trouble generally find me praying that God would answer a prayer in a very specific way. Not my will, but thy will be done seems but a distant echo in my soul as I frantically seek to convince God that my assessment of the problem and the solution are really the best. He just needs to get with my program. But that's not how prayer works. I love what E. Stanley Jones offered this, offered this really helpful example. If, he said, if I throw out a boat hook from a boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me? Or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not about pulling God to my will. It's about aligning my will to the will of God. Jesus exemplified this principle of moving into alignment through prayer in Gethsemane as he prayed three times. If it's possible, and think about that, with God all thing is possible, 
please don't make me go through this. But regardless, I want your will to be done in my life. Second prayer. If I have to go through this fully, then I bow to your will. Third prayer. If I have to go through this fully, then I bow to your will. As he spent time alone in prayer, his perspective was changed and his resolve was increased to do what God had called him to do. Fellowship and communion with other believers, in addition to prayer, is another key element for us during periods when our circumstances seem overwhelming. Often being around other believers is the farthest thing from our minds as we seek to get off the emotional grid as far as possible. But isolation is not a long-term strategy. We need each other to spur each other on, to sharpen iron, to encourage each other to keep going. The great Thanksgiving hymn we gather together from 1894 reminds us of the richness of shared community, especially when we're going through challenging times. We gather together to ask the Lord's blessing. He chastens and hastens our will to make, his will to make known. The wicked oppressing now cease from distressing. Sing praises to his name, he forgets not his own. Beside us to guide us, O Lord, with us joining, ordaining, maintaining his kingdom divine. So from the beginning, the fight we were winning, thou, Lord, was at our side, all glory be thine. We all do extol thee, thou leader triumphant, and pray that thou still our defender will be. Let thy congregation escape tribulation. Thy name be ever praised, O Lord, make us free. You know, the story of that hymn is, is really quite stunning. It was written as part of the persecution of Protestants in the Netherlands. They were being martyred and, um, and killed by the hundreds, but they would still gather, and this, this hymn was written during that time. So we've talked about the need to remember when confronted with seemingly insurmountable odds and to remain in him as we struggled in the middle of a storm. Our final point is the point, the importance of rejoicing and thanking God, especially when we come through a storm. You know, we don't have to look far to see God's splendor and majesty on display. In Psalm 8, we read, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of, uh, of, of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of the hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This theme of rejoicing in community is beautifully reflected in the Thanksgiving hymn, Come, ye thankful people, come. Come, ye thankful people, come. Raise the song of harvest home. All is safely gathered in ere the winter storms began. God, our maker, does provide for our wants to be supplied. Come to God's own temple, come. Raise the song of harvest home. All the work is God's own field, fruit unto his praise to yield. Wheat and tares together sown unto joy or sorrow grown, first the blade and then the ear, then the full corn will appear. Grant, O harvest Lord, that we may wholesome grain and pure may be. 
Our difficulties are often the context where we experience God's presence in profound ways. By leaning to him when our strength is gone and releasing everything into his hands, we find ourselves in a posture of both humility and gratitude, a heart posture that turns us toward God, rejoicing for his goodness, regardless of the circumstances. In this sort of abiding perspective that allows us to pray with confidence like Habakkuk did in Habakkuk 3.17. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. The journey to yet that happens between verse 17 and 18 is often a winding road. To get to the point where we can honestly say that regardless of our circumstances, I will rejoice in the Lord and be joyful in God my Savior. Remembering and remaining are two important components of that journey. Because to know God is our strength, we have to pass through valleys where we come to know that it is only his strength that can bring us through. As Tony Evans says, you'll never know that God is truly all you need until he's all you got. And through it all, he has promised us his presence. The hymn, Praise to the Lord Almighty, from 1680, captures all three of these reminders. To remember God's faithfulness in days past, to remain in him during our storms, and to rejoice in his provision on the other side. Praise to the Lord the Almighty, the King of creation. O oh, my soul, praise him, for he is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear now to his temple draw near, join me in glad adoration. Praise to the Lord, who all things so wondrously reigneth. Shelters thee under his wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how thy desires e'er have been granted in what he ordaineth? Praise to the Lord who doth prosper thy work and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do, if with his love he befriend thee. Praise to the Lord, O let all that is in me adore him. All that hath life and breath come now with praises before him. Let the Amen sound from his people again. Gladly forever adore him. So we end where we started with 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The ability to give thanks in all circumstances requires an enabling work of the Holy Spirit, a work that allows us to remember what God has done in the past, how he has sustained us every day as we remain and abide in him, and how we grow in our faith as we learn to walk through tough times, rejoicing in his provision and grace. Let us pray. Father, thank you for reminding me through your word and through the, uh, the words of these amazing hymns that have come down to us over hundreds of years of your faithfulness and the joy that we experience in knowing that you are with us, you're for us, and that you go before us. Father, we're grateful for so many things. 
Thank you for stirring up in our memories the ways you provided for us, for being with us in our storms, by telling us not to be afraid that you're there, and by helping us to rejoice in all things through the enabling work of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.